Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Origins of the Second World War. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the slide, Vote for Hitler. In 1932, Hitler ran for German president, challenging the 85-year-old incumbent and World War I veteran, Paul von Hindenburg. Hindenburg was re-elected with 53% of the vote, while Hitler received almost 37%. In spite of this loss, Hitler arguably became even more famous. In addition, during the parliamentary elections held later that summer, the Nazis won 230 seats, making it the number one party in Germany. As a result, Hitler began jockeying hard for Hindenburg to appoint him as chancellor but the president kept refusing. So how did Hitler actually come to power? Well, as it turned out, the Nazis weren't the only party gaining popularity in Germany during the Depression. The communists were too. And in the November 1932 parliamentary elections, they won over 100 seats. This scared many conservative leaders and big businessmen, who looked for a way to ensure conservative control over the government as a minority party. One conservative leader, the former Chancellor Franz von Papen, encouraged Hindenburg to appoint Hitler as Chancellor, and then Papen would serve as Vice-Chancellor. Papen believed that Hitler could be tamed by his participation in government, and he told a friend shortly after that that he had, quote, hired him, referring to Hitler. This would end up being one of the greatest miscalculations in world history. In January of 1933, Hitler was appointed as the German Chancellor, and just one month later, the German Parliament building burned down. Naturally, the Nazis blamed the Communists, and asked Parliament to pass an Enabling Act that would give Hitler the power to rule by personal decree for four years. Then, Nazi troopers entered the building and intimidated the Parliament with death threats, so the Act was promptly passed in March. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Consolidating Power. Hitler moved quickly to consolidate Nazi rule over Germany and suppress dissent. In May of 1933, the Nazi-sponsored book burnings that they considered to be un-German in university towns. The first step in ensuring obedience is the destruction of information and the suppression of freedom of speech as well as the targeting of universities that can teach people the truth. By July, all German political parties besides the Nazis had been banned, and then in October, Germany quit the League of Nations, paving their way for their military buildup. In August of 1934, President Hindenburg died, and Hitler simply combined the offices of President and Chancellor. And then Hitler made an ingenious move. He required the army to swear in an oath of an allegiance to himself, and no longer were they loyal to the state or the constitution, but to one man. And it may seem silly, but in this era, people took an oath seriously, as breaking it would stay in your honor. Regardless, in any era, always be aware when someone makes you swear a loyalty oath or forces you to be loyal to him rather than the government or constitution. Then, the Nazis began perverting German culture through Nazification. 
They created a Nazi calendar, instituted Nazi rituals, infused schools with Nazi teachings about the superiority of Aryans and the evilness of Jews. In the end, everything comes back to Adolf Hitler, and kids were indoctrinated to obey him, even above their parents. In terms of culture, only the art, books, movies, and radio that Hitler enjoyed would be shown. And he had terrible taste and disliked any artist who was more talented than him or thinkers who did not recognize his greater genius as he had to be the best at everything. And this is an example of his extreme egotism. As a result, German art and culture will suffer, becoming very Spartan. In an interesting side note, despite the repression, many companies still want to work with Germany as it was a huge market. So producers will make American movies that were edited for German audiences, meaning they had no Jewish writers or actors. And in some ways, this is very similar to Hollywood's relationship with communist China today. The point is that the people live in fear. Everyone informs on each other. And dissenters, like my family, were sent to concentration camps. Please advance to the next slide entitled, 1935. In 1935, the pace quickened on the road to war, at least from our retrospective view. In March, Hitler announced that Germany had an air force and would rebuild its army to a size of 550,000 troops. The League of Nations condemned Germany for the violation of the Versailles Treaty, but did nothing to stop them. Then in May, France and the USSR signed a defensive alliance. The USSR also signed a defensive pact with Czechoslovakia, but it had an asterisk. The Soviets would only help the Czechs if the French helped them first. Stalin himself was increasingly worried about German aggression, but he did not want to fight a one-front war against Germany as he remembered the devastation of the First World War. Then in June, the British signed the Anglo-German Naval Treaty, where they approved Germany's naval buildup so long as it was 60% lower than Britain's navy and only had about 40% in submarines. As international events trended towards a coming conflict, Americans remained steadfast in their commitment to avoid foreign entanglements. For instance, in 1935, Senator Nye from South Dakota launched the Nye Committee, and he did have an agenda going in, as he wanted to demonstrate that American companies had benefited from the First World War and were responsible for leading the country into the conflict. While the committee did prove that businesses had undoubtedly made money from the war, they failed to prove that businesses had influenced foreign policy in any way. Regardless, this led to the Merchant of Death thesis, that American corporations profited off of misery and war. Then in August, the United States passed a Neutrality Act, which was further strengthened in 1936 and 1937. Taken together, they said that when the president announced the existence of a foreign war, Americans could not travel on a belligerent ship or sell munitions or make loans to a belligerent nation. Again, this shows that many were trying to prevent the last war from starting. Americans were staunchly opposed to getting dragged into another European conflict. And a 1937 poll illustrates this, when 94% of Americans thought that the United States should focus on problems at home 
and stay out of foreign wars. Back in Germany, in September, the Nuremberg Laws were passed, which denied citizenship to Jews and banned sexual relations between Jews and non-Jews. Hitler said that this was an attempt to find a legislative solution to the Jewish question and said, quote, If it failed, it will be necessary to transfer the problem to the National Socialist Party for a final solution. This was later expanded to other peoples who were racially suspect, including Roma, or Gypsies, and all non-whites. Lastly, beginning in September 1935, Italian troops invaded Ethiopia, as I previously described. The Italians committed horrific atrocities, and when the League of Nations condemned the invasion, no one paid attention, and as a result, many lost faith in the League. Please advance to the next slide, entitled... 1936. In March of that year, German troops moved into the Rhineland, and the League condemned these actions, but no one did anything about it. That same month, the British began a four-year plan to rearm, with a focus on building up its Navy and Royal Air Force, also called the RAF. The British believed that this was necessary and that they would be ready for war by 1940, and this is fortuitously good timing. In July, civil war broke out in Spain, and the war pitted fascists led by General Francisco Franco against forces loyal to the Spanish Republic. Italy and Germany actually sent forces and supplies to Franco, and the German Air Force cut their teeth fighting over the skies of Spain. However, Britain and France only organized a non-intervention committee, so in response, the USSR sent advisors, tanks, and planes to aid Republican forces. And many liberals from America, including the poet Ernest Hemingway, volunteered for the Spanish Republican Army. The point is that this is a proxy war and a testing ground for German forces to hone their skills, which will be used to deadly effect during the Second World War. Then in September, Hitler announced the creation of his own four-year plan in order to prepare Germany for a total war. And evidence indicates that Hitler believed Germany would be ready for a conflict by the mid-1940s. Luckily for the world, he did not wait that long. Then in November, Mussolini announced the Rome-Berlin Axis, an agreement of general cooperation between the two countries that Japan would later join, making it the Axis powers. Finally, in December, the Hitler Youth reached a membership of 5 million children, and was declared the official youth organization in Germany. This organization trained kids for war and even encouraged teenagers to breed to make more Aryans for the fatherland. This is insane. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Hitler's Olympics. In August of 1936, the Olympic Games were held in Berlin, Germany. And Germany puts on a show for the world, as they wanted to impress the international community and so Hitler eased censorship and restrictive laws so the people could enjoy German tourism. However, Hitler's dream of an Aryan-dominated games was ruined by the great hero, the American sprinter, Jesse Owens, who won four gold medals. Owens should have returned home to a hero's welcome, and while he did get a parade in New York City and Cleveland, he was also publicly threatened in the South. What's more... FDR refused to acknowledge his accomplishments, 
and when he invited white athletes to the White House, Owens was not invited to come. Owens later said, quote, Hitler did not stub me. It was our president who stubbed me. He didn't even send me a telegram, end quote. Now, why did FDR do this? Well, because he needs Southern Democrats in Congress to help him shepherd through New Deal legislation, and they refused to congratulate an African-American man because of his athletic prowess, as it flew in the face of white supremacy and segregation. And this is unfortunate. One final point of interest. The 1936 Olympics is the first major television broadcast with enough power to reach other cosmic galaxies. So in a few centuries... When it reaches our closest galaxy of Andromeda, the first impression that Andromedans are going to get of Earthlings are of Hitler's Nazi Germany. And that is just not a good look for the planet. Please advance to the next slide, entitled 1937. In May of that year, Neville Chamberlain became the Prime Minister of Great Britain and adopted the policy of appeasement. Today, it is considered a dirty, defeatist word, but at the time, it was arguably a long-standing British policy of balancing risks, meaning that they avoided confronting a hostile power in different places at the same time. An example of this is when Great Britain was willing to accept Japan's sphere of influence in Manchuria so long as the Japanese respected British trade privileges in China. Now remember, France and the United Kingdom had been wrecked by the First World War. They lost millions of young men, and their economies were struggling, and they had empires to protect. So were they really going to go to war over Germany annexing German-speaking populations? Not yet, anyway. As the historian R.J. Overly once said, quote, Rightly or wrongly, British statesmen saw Germany as a power which, treated with respect and good sense, could be brought back into the great power system without destroying it. There were plenty of warnings, from a wide variety of official and unofficial sources, that Hitler's ambitions were without limit, unpredictable and dangerous. With the benefit of hindsight, we know this to be true. But certainly until 1938, Hitler asked for nothing that the British were not, in the end, willing to grant. End quote. Then in July, Japanese forces attacked Beijing, China, when they moved on to Shanghai and finally the capital of Nanking, which we described in a previous slide. By November, Hitler had met with his senior advisors and told them about his plans to acquire Lebensraum. The first step was to unite Germany and Austria in the Anschluss, which was a violation of the Versailles Treaty. The second step was to take the Sudetenland, which was a region of Czechoslovakia that was rich in natural resources and industry and had over 3 million German speakers. Please advance to the next slide, entitled 1938. In spring, Chamberlain came to believe that, quote, force is the only argument that Germany understands. But still, he clung to the belief that appeasement could work and that some sort of grand settlement could be achieved. By March, German troops marched into Vienna, Austria, and Germany and Austria were forcibly declared unified in the Anschluss. This angered some but many Austrians supported it after years of Nazification. Some protested that Germany was raping Austria, to which an American newspaper responded, quote, If Germany is raping Austria, then Austria likes getting raped. Within days, 
70,000 Austrians, made up of Jews and dissenters and other suspect peoples, were sent to concentration camps, where thousands died. By May, Hitler told his senior advisors to prepare to take the Sudetenland in the fall, because there was, quote, no danger of a preventative war by foreign states against Germany. So in September, Hitler announced his willingness to go to war to settle the Sudeten issue. Chamberlain flew to Germany to meet with Hitler, who told him the Sudetenland must be handed over or Germany would take it by force. This might mean war, because remember the three-way alliance between France, the USSR, and Czechoslovakia. But Britain wasn't part of this alliance, and British leaders knew that if France went to war, they would probably be dragged in as well. Britain and France began mobilizing their forces, but neither country wanted to go to war in order to defend Czechoslovakia. Interestingly, Mussolini then contacted Hitler and convinced him to attend a four-power conference to discuss the situation. So in late September, the Munich conference was held between Hitler, Mussolini, Chamberlain, and the French Prime Minister. But neither the Czechs nor the Soviets were invited, because Chamberlain knew that Stalin would never accept an agreement to dismember Czechoslovakia. Now there's a funny thing about this. The lesson that the leader of Czechoslovakia had taken away from the First World War was that nation-states based on ethnicity had a tendency to purge non-majority peoples, which is why he wanted a multi-ethnic, multi-religious Czechoslovakia. However, Hitler took the opposite lesson from World War I. Regardless, at the conference, Hitler was given the Sudetenland in return for his promise that he would have good behavior in the future which is laughable. Thus, Munich, like appeasement, is now a word associated with defeatism. But in 1938, Chamberlain returned to Great Britain and was declared a hero and told the people that he established peace in our time. The French Prime Minister, when he returned to Paris, was greeted by a crowd of a half a million well-wishers. Again, this illustrates that the public wanted to avoid war at all costs. And British and French officials were optimistic, but they were by no means complacent. Most agreed that Hitler should be allowed to have his way in Central Europe, but nothing more. And Chamberlain said, quote, It was clear that it would be madness for Britain to stop rearming until we were convinced that other countries would act the same way. We should relax no particle of effort. Then, things went from bad to worse. In October 28th, 17,000 Polish Jews were expelled from Germany, but they were not allowed into Poland by Polish authorities because they were very anti-Semitic. So these refugees settled into relocation camps along the border. Then in November 7th, an official at the German embassy in Paris was shot by a Jewish man. He did this in response to his family losing their business and being arrested because they were ethnic Poles and Jewish. This gave the propaganda minister... Joseph Goebbels, the cover he needed, and so he blamed international Jewry and planned a widespread response, which took place on November 9th to the 10th, called Kristallnacht, meaning the Night of Broken Glass. In Germany, 7,500 Jewish stores were looted and destroyed, 191 synagogues were destroyed, 91 Jews were murdered, and 30,000 were arrested and sent to concentration camps. Thousands died as a result. 
By the end of 1938, the Nazis began the systematic killing of the disabled and mentally ill, ultimately murdering 70,000 human beings in a horrific act of barbarity. Please advance to the next slide, entitled 1939. In January, Hitler showed that he believed he could continue to push the world around, so he met with the Polish foreign minister and demanded that Germany be given access to the Polish corridor, to which they said no. Hitler's foreign minister told him not to worry about Britain and France, whom he believed would do anything to avoid a fight. By February, Chamberlain had promised that Great Britain would help France on the continent if need be, and this was huge for France, because Britain had been pretty isolated from the continent since the 1920s. Then in March, German troops occupied the rest of Czechoslovakia, so now they were taking control of not just German territory, but also Czech and Slavic as well. They also had surrounded Poland by three sides, making it easier for an invasion. After this, British and French officials decided their interests were now threatened, so much so that they had to draw a line in the sand. So on March 31st, Britain and France publicly guaranteed that they would protect Poland's independence. So in the spring, with a possible war over Poland looming, both the Germans and the British and French sent out feelers to the Soviet Union. But Stalin did not trust either side. The Bolsheviks did consider the fascists to be their arch enemies, but they also saw Britain and France as imperialist capitalist nations that simply wanted to use the Soviet Union. Still, in April, Stalin proposed a three-way alliance between the Soviet Union, Great Britain, and France that would guarantee the protection of all countries between the Baltic and Black Seas against German aggression. In August, discussions were held in Moscow, but the British didn't take them seriously, in part because they did not trust the communists. The Soviets sent top-level officials to the meeting, and the British sent a junior representative who did not have the power to sign an agreement. And this infuriated the Russians, so the discussions broke up only after three days. The Germans then began contacting the Soviets in May, but it wasn't until after the Soviets' negotiations with Britain and France had broken down that they decided to talk to the Germans. So on August 19th, the Soviets invited the German foreign minister to come to Moscow, but then Hitler personally telegraphed Stalin to ask for an earlier meeting. So Stalin now knew he could drive a hard bargain and bumped up the meeting accordingly. Please advance to the last slide entitled Casus Belli. On April 24th, Germany and the Soviet Union signed the Nazi-Soviet Non-Aggression Pact. This said that both countries would remain neutral if the other went to war. The pact also contained a secret agreement that said the Soviets would have a sphere of influence in Finland, the Baltic states, Romania, and eastern Poland, while Germany would take western Poland. And this made it about the third or fourth time that Poland would be partitioned by various nations. When Hitler was informed of the pact, he reportedly shouted, quote, Now Europe is mine. We now know that Hitler had always intended to invade the Soviet Union. And Stalin probably knew this too, because after signing, he reportedly said that he had merely bought time, at least a couple of years, so that the Soviet Union could prepare for a German invasion, as the Soviets needed to rebuild their officer corps, which had been decimated during Stalin's purges. On August 25th, in response to this pact, Britain and France reiterated their support for Poland, 
but Hitler did not believe them. Several days later, Hitler said, quote, Our enemies are men who are below average. No personalities. No masters. No men of action. The evidence indicates that Hitler still believed he could finish conquering Central and Eastern Europe without starting a general war in Western Europe. So on September 1st, Nazi Germany invaded Poland, and two days later, Britain and France declared war on Germany. Obviously, the Allies did not want war, but if they had to fight one, they believed they were best prepared to win in 1939 before Germany was fully ready. And they believed that they could defeat Germany on their own, because if they could win the war without American or Soviet help, they thought they could maintain their status as the world powers. So September 3rd is arguably the beginning of a European war, but not necessarily a world war. And it won't become one until 1941 with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. However, don't forget that there was also a separate Asian war going on between the Japanese and Chinese the Americans would ultimately enter. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you're all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.